0: Hello, and welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Tiffany Lin.
1: And I'm Daniel Yellen.
0: And today on the show, Daniel and I had the amazing opportunity to be joined by Jihoon Rim. Jihoon is an all-star Stern professor, former CEO of Kakao, one of the largest tech companies in South Korea. He also started his own VC fund, K-Cube Ventures. And before that, he was in consulting.
1: And Tiffany and I were both really lucky last, uh, last year to have Jihoon as a professor. Brilliant guy, great class. And today we had the chance to talk to him about his tenure as the CEO of Kakao. Also the criteria that he uses to make what we think are really difficult career pivot decisions. Um, and then also just like what he thinks the future of US tech looks like and what it needs to look like so tiffany i thought it was a really good conversation i think other people are going to uh enjoy it just as much as we did
0: yeah i agree he was so open and so willing to just talk about his experiences definitely a rare opportunity
1: and it should probably be mentioned that uh Hoon was the ceo of Kakao when he was in his early 30s so we're talking a true true all-star brilliant business mind and uh we got a lot of that out of his class. We got a lot out of this conversation. Excited to share it with you.
0: On to the show. From New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Jihoon, welcome to the show, thanks for being here.
2: It's my pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: And congratulations, Um, I know August 2020 was the first official month where you're visiting professor of management practice, so I know we're really excited.
2: Thanks, Um, that was a recent development actually during the summer, I wasn't really sure what to do, but I think Stern was really uh, smart and also they're really good. Because you know, the thing is that um, during this pandemic um, offering and hiring a new person might not be their top priority, right? But I think um, they kind of realized and they're really smart, you know, that there's a need for my courses. And I, and you know this, right, that I'm so happy that I can join full time and teach more courses and, you know, interact with my students because I kind of realized that I really love uh, doing this. So yeah, it, it's, it's great for me to be here.
0: Yeah, I know uh, we have classmates who are really excited. So that's fantastic.
2: Yeah. And as former students,
1: both Tiffany and I are very happy that you're going to be returning uh, in a more full-time capacity. So it, yeah, was, it was very great. exciting news for both of us. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um, so obviously we want to get to hear about your tenure as CEO of Cacao and also mm-hmm. starting your own early stage VC fund. But before that, we wanted to talk a little bit more about you and what you were like growing up, kind of what motivated you and what you enjoyed.
2: I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult to just, you know, come up with a sentence describing how I grew up. But I think I have to begin with my childhood a little bit. Um, honestly, I wasn't really a good student, I think, back when I was in elementary school. Um, I didn't really study hard. Um, I didn't really like being told to do something at that time, even at that time. So you know, I didn't know why I had to study hard, right? So I remember there's like a, you know, sometimes I remember an episode that actually um, I skipped a class and then went to an arcade and then you know of course i got caught and then my parents had to go to school and you know i had to write some kind of uh, um, paper uh, promising that i would never do that again something like that and on top of that actually um when I was in elementary school, I played baseball, um, kind of, you know, I was registered in the Korean uh, Baseball Association. So I was pretty serious at that time. Mm-hmm. You might think that, you know, hi, Ji- Jihoon, this, this you know, professor is not even that tall, right? <laughs> That's correct. Um, I'm only like, you know, f- um, five feet, nine, something like that. But actually, I didn't grow that much after, you know, uh, middle school. So at that time, with that height, I was pretty tall. So I was pretty good. Um, But um, I kind of realized that uh, I might not be able to go to the national level, you know, the pro level. Uh, Baseball is pretty big in, in, you know, South Korea. And then that was the time that I kind of decided that I should focus on my studies, right? I should study more. And from seventh grade, I think, until I went to college, I studied really hard, like 12 hours a day, I think. Um, even, you know, after, after coming back from school, I think I studied like five to six hours every day, and then I became pretty good at it. And I think a lot of the Asians who lived in Asia uh, might have the same experience as I do. But during that period of time, middle school and high school in Asia, you don't really think about your dream. It's like, you know, first go to college. Right. So I studied hard um, and I was pretty good in math and science and everything. So um, I was able to go to KAIST, which is like, you know, the top engineering school in South Korea. It's like a uh, MIT of Korea. Um, Yeah, um, until then, I didn't really know how my, you know, life will turn out. So the beginning part of my childhood was, you know, being childish. uh, (laughs) And the second part was not really having much fun and just studying. So, So what I'm hearing though, is that
1: you are competitive right from an early age if you were really into baseball and then it sounds like you were able to kind of take that competitive spirit
2: and dedicate it to your studies does that sound right i think so i'm not sure if it was the nature of me or if i kind of got that while i was playing sports um i'm not sure which one it was but i really hated losing to somebody else right so i began late studying you know um A typical south korean would really study hard from elementary school i was pretty late in the game because i started when i was in seventh grade right Mm. so i had to put extra efforts on that that's the reason i was saying that like you know studying 12 hours a day uh that's a lot for a kid right but i didn't really want to lose and if you're good at something actually uh it becomes more fun i think right so so the way it progressed it was pretty good um you know my grades were going up my actually uh in south korea at that time you could see the ranking so basically you could see like you know uh chi and this guy is like top let's say 100 out of 600 students then moves up to 50 then moves up to 10 moves up to like one um it felt like a game (laughs) <laughs> so it was like a part of you know studying is one thing, but actually achieving those kind of numbers uh, for me, uh, it felt like a game.
0: That's it. You can see the numbers from the entire country of where you were ranked.
2: Actually, we could. Uh, there were some you know um, mock SAT national level mock SAT. So you do that like every other month, kind of, and then most of the you know high schoolers take that test and then there's a ranking like you know a hundred out of the total nation something like that wow what does that do for your stress level as a kid i don't know um as I said, during that period of time, um, I didn't really think much. Um, I didn't have the luxury of thinking about my dream. I just thought that, you know, I'll just go to a top university and since I'm good in math and science, you know, I would go to KAIST and then maybe I'll become like an engineer, which I didn't turn into to become an engineer. Uh, we could talk about that. But yeah, at that time, I thought I would be like a genius scientist, something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually exactly where I'd love to go. So. You went to,
1: to Keist and I, I'd, I'd love to hear when in that process, if you were studying math and science and engineering, at what point did you think, oh, business makes sense? When was that, uh, that shift from the math and science to maybe something that was a little bit outside of what maybe a lot of your classmates were going to go into?
2: I think I didn't have like an aha moment that I realized that, okay, business is my stuff. right? Um, one thing that I realized is, is the first semester at college, and I realized that I'm not as smart as I thought. There were so many smart kids over there. So, uh-oh, that was like a red flag for me. And then I was like, you know, kind of wandering around a little bit and trying to figure out what I should do. And uh, let me say it like this. You know, um, there might be some listeners thinking about my career, my, you know, looking into my resume and thinking that, Maybe I planned out the whole journey, you know, going to like an engineering school. Sometimes I get these kind of questions like going to the engineering school and then going to consulting to becoming like a venture capitalist and then, you know, uh, running a big um, tech company. Uh, It's kind of might look like a stepping stone to each to the next step. Right. But actually, uh, my real life was a series of failure, if you really think about it, because looking into all the things that I chose I wasn't really great at it but I adapted really quick and chose the other path so if you really think about it uh, from my childhood I tried to do, become like a baseball player I wasn't at the national level so I quit and then going to KAIST, um, I thought you know I could become like a great scientist or engineer and then I realized that there are, you know much better people out there so I quit so I was at the uh, computer science department, right? The CS department, and then on my third grade at college, I changed. You know, I transferred to industrial engineering, which is like a broader kind of engineering, right? So um, even at that time, I didn't know that I will just go to. You know, I'll become a business person. I was like, uh, what should I really do? So I, I failed again as an engineer. And then um, after graduating, you know, at the time of the graduation, I looked around, and then most of the smartest people uh, went to consulting, like, -hmm. you know, McKinsey, BCG, and Bain. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll try that out. It it looks nice. Um, I just want to prove myself kind of, and I went there. So it's not like I wanted to become like a business leader. Um, There was not like an aha moment, right? It was just kind of, you know, figuring out what I was not good at and taking rid of those kind of you know choices. Mm.
0: How, do you think there's anything from your childhood that kind of helped you deal with that fear of failure in terms of pivoting? I know a lot of people when we talk about com- going down a completely different path that a big barrier is, well, what if I'm not great at that?
2: I like being, you know, I like the things that I'm good at. I think I, I can express it like that. Um, slightly related to this topic is that uh, a lot of mentors or successful people say that you should pursue what you like to do right you should pursue your passion um, which could be true uh, but i prefer to saying that uh, maybe you should pursue what you're good at because most of the time if you're really good at something you know um, you get recognized you get the praise and then you like it so maybe my my life was you know kind of trying to figure out what I'm good at or what I'm not good at, and then removing all the things that I was not good at. I didn't really think that, you know, oh, this is my big dream. Oh, I failed. I'm going to pivot. Um, it was just, you know, like, um, oops, I realized that there are <laughs> much better people like that, right? Oh, I, maybe I should try another thing, right? Because whatever I do, I, I, I want to be like the best. Not, not the best, but I want to be good at it, right? So I, I, I moved around.
0: Yeah, so actually, that's a great pivot Um, what initially appealed to you about venture capital so you were in consulting you were doing well at that and then an opportunity came to you how did you decide that that was your next step
2: so that again was not something that I planned ahead um, honestly speaking, when I was at college, maybe it was because at that time, that was in the late 90s, so uh, venture capital, especially in South Korea, wasn't like a super popular job. I didn't even know that a job existed like that, right? But um, I went to consulting. Um, I could understand why people like that, but I wasn't really enjoying it, right? Um, I kind of wanted to do something that I could you know, execute a little bit more, And consulting, uh, you were having like a bunch of smart people coming up with great recommendations, but I just wanted to do more. And on top of that, um, since I had some experience in my very early uh, stage of my career, um, I worked at Naver, which is a tech company, a search uh, portal in South Korea, like uh, Korea and Google. um, After experience the tech company early days, um, I, I kind of missed that environment. So I was like, you know what, Um, I didn't know what venture capital is, but after looking into it, I actually had to Google it. Um, After after realizing what venture capital is, I thought that, oh, you know what, this is kind of an intersection of business and technology. And if you really look at the daily job that a venture capitalist has to do, it's meeting people. If you really think about it, it's Mm -hmm. not really doing a bunch of, you know, Excel modeling. It's not really doing, you know, a bunch of research. It's meeting people. So... I kind of love meeting people, you know, um, um, maybe that's the reason, you know, I love teaching. Um, so I kind of felt that, yeah, you know what, why not try this, why not try this. And then after I joined Venture Capital, um, I was working, but I wasn't working. So it just felt that, you know, uh, I'm not really working. So that was another reason that I could spend like 10 to 12 hours a day without being really stressed. And again, I became lucky, so I became pretty successful in South Korea. Um, Yeah, that's how I turned to become like a venture capitalist. And then I was in that industry for eight or nine years, I think. And then
1: after those eight or nine years, you had a pretty incredible opportunity. You were in your early 30s, 30s, I think, right. And you were tapped to become the CEO of Kakao, which for, for those listeners who might not be familiar, is a really big deal tech company in, in South Korea um, that has some products that are pretty broadly adapted, uh, or adopted, I should say. Um, so what was that transition like for you? And what was your initial thought when you were approached and, and given this opportunity?
2: I really never thought about, you know, uh, becoming a CEO of a big, you know, tech company or any kind of large corporation because um, after becoming a venture capitalist, um, I became a little bit successful and I founded my own venture capital, right? KQ Ventures, uh, that was 2012. So after becoming a founder and CEO of a VC firm, you don't really imagine yourself, you know, uh, moving around to another company. Um, I just thought that, you know, I I love this job, I will continue this for maybe like 20, 30 years. Um, But out of nowhere, you know, um, the board and the chairman of Kakao approached me and they were telling me that um, they wanted me to become the CEO and I was really shocked, really shocked because I never thought about it. And then I, I had to ask them, you know, like, why did you pick me as a CEO? And I think, you know, Um, Again, there's a huge luck part um, associated with this episode again, is that at that time, Kakao needed an an outsider rather than an insider because Kakao just acquired and merged another large tech company, so they wanted somebody who doesn't have any kind of internal politics or political debt. Uh, from the company, so they thought that they they needed an outsider and they needed a person who could you know really lay the uh, foundation for the future growth. And since I was a pretty successful venture capitalist who has great network um, in the IT and the tech industry, uh, they thought that they could bring me in and then I could you know strategize a, a few projects over there and kind of you know uh, prioritize the, all the, all the projects. So that was a period that they needed someone like me Uh, i truly believe that leadership um could be different uh time by time because it requires different kind of leadership styles so i think i was the right person at that time i might not be you know the right person maybe uh later on or even before that so um it was like the timing right timing and um uh i had many thoughts I i had many thoughts but you know at the end of the day whenever i chose to do something Um, i always think about what do i lose if i fail after doing that right and that's like one of my framework whenever i choose to do something i really think deeply and i imagine myself failing at that and then then if i can really you know stand with that kind of ramifications um, i go for it and if you really think about it there are not that many risky things if you really think about the real risk of it um, i don't think those are huge so thinking about that you know let's say that I failed uh, leading a big tech company Uh, at that time I thought that you know um, then I could just go back and become a venture capitalist Uh, it's gonna really hurt Um, I didn't think so right so it wasn't like a hugely difficult decision for me and luckily enough thanks to my colleagues over there yeah um, the company did great So.
1: As you think about the differences in being the GP of a venture capital firm and being the CEO of a large tech company, how different are those jobs and what was that transition like for you?
2: Um, It's totally different, I think. Um, And I had to go through a lot of, you know, trial and error. Basically, if I just talk about, you know, being a GP or a venture capitalist first, um, I think a venture capitalist... Is a salesperson. Not that many people say this, but um, you know, many people think that a venture capitalist has to be tech-savvy, super smart, good in finance, and et cetera. But there are so many people who has that kind of skill sets, right? To become an outstanding venture capitalist, um, I believe that you have to become a salesperson. So, if you really think about all the daily activities that a venture capitalist does, I think everything is sales. Right, um, going to an entrepreneur and saying that, hey, would you allow me to invest in your company? Uh, our firm is this good, right? And actually, if you're not doing that, and instead you're just you know, sitting in your office and just you know, listening to the pitches that all the entrepreneurs are approaching you, I think there's a high chance that you're doing it wrong. Actually, it has to be the venture capitalist, you know, um, going after the top tier teams and then pitching to them. Not only that, so sourcing is like that, um, you know, uh, getting the investment, you have to persuade all your internal you know, partners. That's, again, kind of a salesperson's job. Uh, not only that, uh, all, all the value adds that you claim that you're going to do to a startup. If you really think about it, it's not about the strategy. They don't want to pick on your brain that much. Actually, they want you to, for example, you know, introduce to a key person in the industry. They want you to uh, introduce to uh, top tier engineers. So basically, you have to reach out to those people and become a salesperson for the company that you invested. So again, that's another you know a salesperson's job. Um, not to mention even you know the funding. So if you really think about all the you know job that is done as a venture capitalist, it's sales. So whenever I meet somebody who, who claims that uh, he or she wants to become a venture capitalist, I always tell them, uh, do you like sales? Mm-hmm. If you don't really like sales, don't do that. Private equity is slightly different, but venture capitalists, especially the early stage venture capital, you have to become a salesperson. And being a CEO of a large, large corporation, um, there's some you know um, strategy work, that's true, you have to set the direction, But at the end of the day, it's managing people. It's all about managing people because you can't do all the job. And I think we have some kind of misperception of being a CEO, uh, thanks to the media uh, that taught us, right? You look into uh, Steve Jobs, you look into Elon Musk, and then you kind of see all the CEOs delivering up fantastic fabulous presentation and sometimes you see a documentary and Steve Jobs is kind of you know pointing out all the details Mm -hmm. Um, it could be a little bit like that Uh, I I don't agree that that never happens from time to time uh, you might need to do that but most of the job is actually making your people do their work and it's actually difficult to make that happen because All the people, especially, you know, the senior executives that you're working with, they're all ambitious. They're all smart. So basically, maybe a job of a CEO is actually aligning these two, these two, which I mean, growing the company and giving an opportunity to those executives and your people, because those talented people, right? If you dictate around, if you don't really give them an opportunity, uh, they can move to another place especially in this you know, hugely competitive society uh, when there's like a war for talent in tech industry. So it's not like you know, becoming a, a super person, telling all the people uh, to, you know, what to do. It's really m- giving them an opportunity, but still you have to make them be aligned you know, to the direction of the company that you set. So it's kind of a balance uh, between those two.
1: So if you reflect on your time, at Kakao, is there an accomplishment that you're most proud of?
2: Um, I have to begin with saying that you know most of the accomplishments that was done at Kakao, um, my colleagues really did it. If you really think about it, there were so many successful projects. You know, not only Kakao Talk but Kakao Taxi, Kakao Games, Kakao Music. Um, Cacao bank, cacao pay, whatever you name it. If you really think about it, I didn't really get involved into the details. I was more like you know a person who set the direction, approved the project, um, and doing the resource allocation. So all the you know the credit has to go to them. Uh, that's for sure. But um, if you if you ask me what I did, what's what I'm most proud of? It is I think I, I kind of made a culture or, or created a culture for them to excel so and i brought in the right people i believe for example you know the co-ceos who succeeded me uh, are the people I, I brought in you know uh you know the ceos of a lot of subsidiaries that cacao has uh, a lot of them are the people that i brought in so after i left the company still the company is running well right um so that kind of shows that i i laid The right foundation i brought in the right people and the companies keep growing so i think that is a little bit important rather than focusing on me and saying that you know what i did these three tasks um rather than that i i I could say that you know i built the foundation i i kind of not created but i helped the company to have that kind of culture i brought in the right people Um, um i think i have to say those are the things that i'm proud of Absolutely. Again, we're hearing
1: this theme of of people. Like that's that definitely feels like the uh, the thread that we can pull throughout your your life, at least up until this point, where you just really want to surround yourself with with the right people, and the uh, the good things will follow.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So, from everything from starting your own VC fund, seeing that to success, setting the direction, on top of managing people, I feel like a big part of that is understanding you know, what's on the horizon, what are the trends that are in the industry. So I'm curious to get your perspective here, where do you see the United States leading in terms of consumer technology, or maybe not leading?
2: so definitely, the United States is leading the tech industry. Just look into the stock market, right? The five most valuable companies are all US- based, fabulous tech companies, right? Uh, we talk a lot we talk about them a lot in class, like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Um, all those companies are great. They're Microsoft. They're just, they're just great. There are tons of things that they're doing right. But does that mean that you know they have nothing to learn? there's nothing to learn from other countries or other top tier, you know, tech companies, especially from Asia. Um, I don't think so. Um, there are certain parts that maybe South Korea, Japan or China, especially China is doing great in many aspects uh, that U.S. companies can learn. And that's, I can say that the application of tech, uh, technology, is much more widespread and the people Uh, in those countries, I think, are a little bit more used to do everything on mobile. Um, So there are so many things that kind of begin there. So in certain areas, they're earlier than us, Uh, they're more advanced than us. So if you really think about it, for example, let's say that um, you want to order something or you want to talk to a mom and pop shop that is around your place. Um, In the United States, most of the time, you have to Google that place, and then you land into uh, a not-so-good website over there, and then, you know, that website looks like from the 90s, and then uh, you can't really do something with that, and some kind of, you know, websites, for example, have... Uh, you know a payment system over there but uh, when you try to you know order something you get afraid you become reluctant because you don't want really want want to type in your information over there and you don't really want to you know put in your credit card information in there for example um, a lot of the things are different in china uh, with wechat and in korea with kakao is that you know you open up your messenger and then all the mom and pop shops uh, you can easily find it on your messenger, you connect them as your friends, and then actually you could just talk to the owner of that shop, and then you could just order something, and the payment system is ran by um, the top tech company like you know Tencent, uh, Alibaba, Kakao, uh, Naver, so all those kind of companies, and the, cu- the customers, you know, uh, the users can trust it, right? So that's the reason, um, I think I also said that uh, during class, um, one of the big area that um, US tech companies could excel, I think, um, especially Facebook and Google um, is, you know, hugely investing in payment systems and connecting their infrastructure to tons of, you know, um, small and medium businesses. And if you really think about it, then all the consumers will get the benefit of it, easily accessing to all those kind of not only mom and pop shops, but everything that you want to consume. And those big tech companies could provide the you know infrastructure. So then your life will become um, slightly different, much more convenient. We're a little bit experiencing uh, during this pandemic because it's accelerating the usage of technology. But if you can think that you know, um, Asia, a lot of Asian company countries you know are ahead of us in that sense. And also, if you think about it, there are also some interesting ideas coming up from um, Asian tech companies. TikTok, for example, was from China, of course. And when it comes to video commerce. Um, I truly believe that video commerce is going to be big in the US too because Amazon is great, but you know, you have to look into the review. Uh, you look into the pictures, um, photos, and then you, you, you're you a little bit confused whether you're going to buy it or not. Whereas video commerce, the owner of that, you know, the, the manufacturer of that, you know, product is explaining it. It's showing to you. It's a video. So you, you get a comprehensive uh, explanation of the product. So you're willing to pay. So, so, um, that's those are the things that we can really learn from a lot of you know consumer tech companies in Asia, I think
0: a lot of reducing friction and enabling
1: trust,
2: definitely. Yeah. definitely.
1: I, I know that I'm definitely on the cautious consumer end of things. And so whenever I go to buy a product, especially if it's you know a significant purchase, I spend so much time not just shopping around from different sites, but then also, on YouTube to try to find reviews or to try to find what this product actually looks like in practice and if that process could be streamlined or if it could be at least all in one place or if manufacturers thought about the importance of video in creating a seamless consumer experience I know that it would save me personally a lot of time so I'd be appreciative hundreds of, of, hours. of that
2: <laughs> Right right basically Thanks to the internet and mobile, you're you're kind of building a trust. So the manufacturer or you know the product, the the company that actually is building that product could has a chance to directly talk to the consumer, and that's the way to go, I think. And we're gonna see that a lot more here in the United States. Um, yeah, that that's uh, when it's that was something that I want to talk about consumer tech. And also, there's gonna be I think. A huge investment is needed in the infrastructure, you know, uh, side too. Because when I first came to U- New York in two thousand eighteen, um, here I was really shocked that I couldn't really use my mobile internet underground when I was taking a subway. Mm. I was really shocked because most of the Asian c- countries, you know, um, you have like super fast internet, super fast Wi-Fi, super fi- fast, you know, four G, five G underground, and you know, those kind of things um, makes a difference.
0: Yeah, even when um, Quibi was being announced, I all I could think about was how I can't even get my Twitter feed to load underground during my commute.
2: Right? How could you watch like a five minute, you know, a video uh, on commute? So the basic value proposition uh, was a kind of, you know, an error. Right. Do you think that that's one of the initial steps
1: that we kind of need here in the United States is just a significant investment
2: in? high-speed internet infrastructure or 5G infrastructure? Definitely, definitely. Because especially during this pandemic, I didn't know that, uh, but I was, you know, listening to news and then I was alarmed that there's still like how many percentage of population who don't have regular access to the broadband, you know, and Wi-Fi. So they couldn't take remote learning. That's shocking for the kids who are in elementary, middle school and high school. That's a huge problem. And if you give that, I, I, I personally believe that, you know, internet should be like uh, basic human rights, seriously. Mm. Um, with that, there's so many things that you can do. Um, you can make the education much better. Um, so that's a huge minus if that's not done properly.
0: Especially with uh, everything that's happened since COVID in March, I think so many things have gone online with teletherapy, telemedicine, these kind of basic human needs and all of a sudden we need the internet to access them.
1: It feels really upsetting when you see these videos of kids sitting outside of fast food restaurants to get the free Wi-Fi in order to take a class online.
2: I know, and, that's yeah. that's not right. So that's the reason I just came up with the uh, nonsense thing that it's it's a human basic right, kind of. It's that level. and. Actually, it's good for the companies, I think, too, because, you know, then after having that kind of infrastructure, those consumer, that 20, 30 percent of the population, uh, they will not be left out of your customer base. So in the long run, it's going to be a huge benefit for all the companies operating in the United States. So maybe this has to be done by the government. I'm not sure, but this really has to be done. So shifting gears a little bit uh, after. I believe it was three
1: years that you spent as the CEO of Cacao. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you spent a little bit of time traveling the world. Um, mm-hmm. And then you ended up in New York City. And you were introduced to Stern as an opportunity. And I'd right. love to hear a little bit more about that story and how you came to teaching a class to both Tiffany and I uh, at Stern.
2: Um, After stepping down as a CEO of Kakao, I I went to Bali, you know, for a a little bit more than a month. And my original plan was then move to, you know, the opposite of Bali, kind of, you know, laid back situation and then go to the most hectic place in the world, which is New York. And then uh, my plan was going to, you know, uh, uh, Paris and then Tokyo, something like that. Um, I I had a plan that time. But uh, after coming to New York City, I kind of realized that I really liked the environment and, you know, the vibe here. And one of my friends actually introduced me to a Stern professor. It was um, Alexander Tuchelin, actually. And, you know, we sat down together. He's a, you know, a, a professor at tech department. So we sat down together and we were having long conversation about a lot of agent tech companies, actually. Um, and of course, he's a tech professor, so he understands what I was saying. And he was telling me that um, he was saying that, hey, I think, you know, our school really needs someone like you, uh, you know, teaching MBAs. And I was like, uh, really? You know what? I don't even have a Ph.D. I don't even have like a master's. I, I, I never, you know, got an MBA and I teach, you know. At one of the top universities in in, in the world, uh, do you think that makes sense? And he was, like, why not? Let me, you know, let me let me think about it. I'll talk to you to the department chair and I'll talk to the school. And that was November two thousand eighteen. And if you really think about it, most of the courses uh, for the spring semester was already announced. So that was pretty late, and. I have huge respect for Stern, I think I said that in the beginning, um, because Stern is really adaptive. I think that's like one of the strengths that um, our school has, because I'm pretty sure that a lot of, you know, um, top tier schools are pretty slow, are pretty bureaucratic, and, you know, um, it's really difficult to become nimble, whereas Stern, in that perspective, did a fabulous job. So November 2018, uh, we had that conversation. And early December, um, Alex came back to me and he was uh, he was telling me that uh, he got the approval. So, hey, why don't you teach from February? And I was like, what should I teach? And he was like, you know, um, I trust you. Just teach whatever you want. And that itself, you know, shows a lot. Uh, again, uh, huge respect for you know Stern doing that because even though I might be a successful you know CEO back in South Korea. Um, I was not well known in New York City. Um, English is not my first language. Um, I've never taught before. Um, nobody knows what will come up. But they just gave me like a full semester course that I had to meet my students 26 times, 80 minutes. So from December, I had to you know uh, develop the course material. It was kind of crazy, right? Um, I just, you know, came up with a, a fancy title. You know, I just wanted to put the CEO on the title, so I just, you know, came <laughs> up with a, a fancy title, managing a high-tech company, the CEO perspective. But I didn't really know what to do, and um, I kind of think that I co-developed this course with my first cohort. You know, my first cohort when I was teaching in 2019 spring. So I have, I have to thank them a lot. Um, they gave me great feedback, and now, you know, it's a little bit more. Um, you know structured and um it, ca- it became pretty well um but yeah this is was this was a great opportunity you know this was a great opportunity for me uh, that was presented um and i i realized i really love teaching here and the same goes to the full-time offer again you know stern in that sense i think it's a great school because at the end of the day if you really think about it it's a business school and it's teaching, you know, future business leaders. And if the administrators, the leaders of the school doesn't know how to do business, it it's nonsense. Whereas, you know, I think my case is a perfect example that the, the, the school understands business. Um, I think that's one of the, uh, another reason that Stern is a great school.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've kind of seen a thread throughout is you're kind of tossed, not tossed, but tossed into these situations where you might feel like you're not necessarily prepared, even when you're starting your own VC, a new CEO, even moving from a technical degree to consulting. How do you prepare prepare for that? How do you deal with that ambiguous, well, let's just see how it goes?
2: That's a good point. If, looking back, I think I really uh, put myself into those risky positions, um, but again, I think, yeah, we, we, I just told you guys that if you really think deeply, what's the real risk that you're taking? Um, and I kind of, you know, imagine myself putting the scenario that uh, I fail uh, doing a new thing, but even though I fail it, um, I kind of realized that it's not gonna be a huge damage to me because most of the time I could just go back uh, to the previous thing that I was doing, if i just you know did my best so i kind of like being exposed to a new opportunity i don't really think that there's a huge downside on taking on a new um opportunity and that's like the fastest way to grow i believe so it was always like that. You know. Even from moving from consulting to uh, venture capital, there were some people telling me that you know, consulting is a safe bet. And I was telling them, you know what? I go to venture capital and after two, three years, if I figure out that I was not good at that, um, I will just go back to consulting, right? Um, if Boston Consulting Group, which I was at there, uh, doesn't hire me, I'll go to McKinsey or Bain. So what's the whole point, right? Uh, what's the real huge risk that I'm you know, taking? Not really. So after having those kind of thoughts, you know, what's the real risk here? What do I lose if I don't succeed on this new opportunity? If you really think deeply, uh, the risk might not be that huge. Whereas there's gonna be a huge amount of new learning and that will make you stronger and stronger, I believe.
1: What was more nerve wracking the first time? Uh, First time as a CEO, in front of the board of cacao or the first time uh in the kmc building standing in front of your students and having to present for 80 minutes
2: uh i have to be honest it's not that i'm not respecting my students (laughs) that i love i have to be honest that you know uh being a first time ceo at a large public you know company especially at that time the company wasn't really doing good the revenue and operating income was going down so basically it was a crisis that was the reason an outsider as me you know was brought in so that was super stressful i think for maybe like three four months um i only slept like three four hours honestly i was oh only working, working 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 meeting all the people that i could meet um oh one one thing that I, I think I, I did pretty good, um, and maybe this would be a good, you know, um tactic for those who are an outsider who jump into a new role, is that I had a one-on-one with a hundred employees, my colleagues at Cacao, right after you know, I accepted the offer. And somebody might think that, you know especially during that crisis uh, why are you wasting your time right you have to execute you have to write uh, jump into uh, the strategy and execution and you have to talk with the executives uh, rather than meeting you know the uh, front line you know engineers frontline product people but I totally disagree um, I got like the best ideas from them because if you really think about it all the executive meetings, um, it's kind of, you know, it has the structure and not all information goes up to the CEO. So some of those, the nuances could be left out. Whereas if I just, you know, sit down with a a 20 something year old engineer, and then he or she tells me all the truth, right? Hey, CEO, did you know that this is crap? Something like that. So then I kind of realized that, oh, you know what? Maybe um, I should really look into this area So uh, nerve cracking, definitely um, the CEO, because honestly speaking, um, I always thought that I could be fired right at any time. Um, That doesn't mean again, uh, I'm not being disrespectful, that doesn't mean that um, it wasn't nerve cracking uh, when I just stood in front of my fellow students. it was, I, I was pretty nervous too at that time because I didn't really know how, would, how they would respond, especially because, you know, even though South Korea now it's a little bit well-known thanks to BTS and many, you know, <laughs> uh, Um but it's not like a very well-known country, right? And if I come up with some examples of South Korea or Asia, uh, I was afraid that a lot of sternies might, you know, not be interested in, uh, but that was not the case. I was very thankful and I was uh, it was a little bit surprising for me that my students really wanted to learn about Asia. And they, they of course understood that a lot of learnings from there could be also applied in the US tech industry. So that was, turned out to be good. But in the beginning, I was very nervous too. Having taken the
1: class, um, I can say it's 100% worth it and it's developed into a pretty uh, impressive and difficult to get into uh, course. I think I really appreciate that you capped the number of students so that we can have those in-depth conversations and that we can learn from each other uh, in addition to uh, learning from you and your experiences and the cool speakers that you bring in. Um, Absolutely,
0: both in-person and virtual. Thank you. So Jihoon, thank you so much for being with us. Um, This has been fantastic. We're really excited to have you at Stern, too. Hopefully in person soon.
2: Thank you for having me again. And I, I really can't wait to meet you all.